Blackwater, the Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, the Flying Tigers, the Swiss Guard, the White Company, the Knights Templar, the Varangian Guard, Clercus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, guns for hire, soldiers of fortune, private military companies, private security contractors, dirty deeds done not so dirt cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They have been around for a very long time and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. So you better get used to it, grow up and accept it, or move to another planet. Because these days in this world, folks, money trumps everything. And like it or not, wars are good, very good, for business. Furthermore, history tells us that greed, corruption, oppression, and tyranny are responsible for more deaths than anything else. Money, profits, and propaganda. Call it psychological operations or call it psychological conditioning. You are being gaslit. So take the red pill, remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Oconus, The Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of northwestern Washington State, I'm your host, Scott Dresser. So life <clears throat> as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone or a non-permissive environment. Well, it is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good, some not so good. All in all though, private security contracting is much the same as life. It is what you make it. And the MENA region, or the Middle East, North Africa region, lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the old ones and the ancient ones. Myths, legends. Folklore? Maybe. If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centered around what we refer to as the MENA region. Yep, that's right, the Mediterranean. And you probably also know that to every legend or myth, there is a base of at least some truth to it. All right, folks, so, to put a more or less final wrap on Kuwait, uh, because after this episode, so this episode will be uh, basically the last full episode, uh, more or less exclusively devoted to uh, my experiences as a private security contractor in Kuwait. Uh, so after this episode, future episodes will start trans will transition to Iraq. And I'll probably bounce back and forth between Iraq and Afghanistan, but I'll try to keep it mostly as best I can to Iraq. Not to say that I won't come back to Kuwait, you know, periodically and maybe some other stuff um, as, as it happens. But that is, <laughs> you know, it just as the memories or the recollections come to me because uh, 
You know, I mean, quite honestly, I, I'm not one that really enjoys talking a lot. And I certainly don't enjoy talking about myself and, and things I've done or, or experienced, this, that, one thing, another. However, I do understand, <clears throat> uh, based on some feedback and, and conversations that, like a lot of us over the years, uh, you know, you realize, and, and trust me, I'm saying this with in the most humble manner possible, and I mean it truly and sincerely, but I have come to realize that to some extent, um, my life does have some, at least to some folks, some fascinating um, experiences. Now, obviously, I'm not going to talk about all of them. <laughs> um, so anyway, back to Kuwait for the last time. Um, so earlier episodes in this season... Um, the first three to five, I think, uh, certainly by the end of the fifth episode, I think it was the fifth episode, I, I pretty much had concluded all these so-called, what most people would call scary or hair-raising encounters. Um, so, as I came up to the end of my tour, if you will, with my first contract that I had committed to sticking around for one year, and I stayed there the entirety of that year, I think as I've explained previously, uh, because I knew when I took my uh, quote-unquote two weeks of vacation, decided to stay in country, and and I think I actually only utilized one of those two weeks because my wife convinced me that the money for that second week would be a nice little addition to the bank account, <laughs> you know. Um, Anyway, so I, I actually only took one week off. Now, I did have other days that I took as sick calls, um, and, and those irked me to no end because at that time, the company, they weren't the only company. There were one or two other companies that, uh, we want a doctor's note. You know, it's like, wow, really? You know, so if you're truly sick, as I was once or twice, and I think we called it the crud or there was something else we called it, um, but it, it just, it seemed when I talked with people, when they found out about it, they said, everybody gets it, man, especially Americans or Westerners. The first time you come here, it's going to happen. Within a week, two at the most, you're going to get sick, and it's not going to be pleasant, <laughs> okay? I forget what we called it, but um, some, of us, some people just called it the crud, but there was another name for it, and if I remember it, I'll, I'll throw it out there. If one of you remembers it, <laughs> you know, refresh my memory. So... Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, that's the kind of thing that irked me to no end. It's like, really, you guys have seen me and been around me long enough. You should know that if I'm sick and I say I'm sick and I, you know, where I need to stay in my room for a day or two. Okay. Um, that that's the case because if I feel I'm that sick that I can't go to work, it's pretty bad and I'm going to be absolutely useless to you out there in the field doing anything now if you need to capture me in an office and and have me do some administrative work i'll do the best i can but if i'm calling out sick i'm sick so those times um where they needed me to go in and get a doctor's note i'm like really so now because i was not one of those guys that was going to spend a thousand fifteen hundred two thousand dollars a month on a rental vehicle that could so I'd have a vehicle at my disposal in addition you know you didn't have to worry about maintenance that was taken care of uh, you know if it needed something you would just 
the guys that that had a vehicle in Kuwait would just take it to wherever they were leasing or renting it, and they would swap it out if it needed maintenance. But I wasn't going to spend that kind of money every month. I mean, I was in Kuwait to make money, man, not spend it. Um, so, yeah, so now I had to, you know, call somebody. Usually it was a one or two guys that I trusted. Um, I think, I don't think they were Kuwaiti. They were from another country, but I, that I kind of more or less trusted that had a pretty good name in terms of being a taxi driver. They knew the roads. They knew the area. They weren't going to run you down roads, you know, to jack things up. And there, it was a prepaid price. You already had it up front. This is what I'm willing to spend for you to drive me into town and then pick me up when I'm done and drive me back. But mind you, <laughs> I called it an all-day affair. Um, it wasn't always. Sometimes it was a half a day. In other words, and what I mean by all day is that round trip could be as much as 12 hours. Okay. Other times it was, you know, six hours, maybe close to eight. Because by the time I pick up that phone, he comes and gets me, drives me in. You know, it's a 30, 35, 40 minute drive to get to the doctor's office. And fortunately, I had found a doctor in Kuwait downtown in a uh, medical facility that had been referred to me. And it turns out the guy was from India. So he was an Indian. We got along well. He had a nice office, very pleasant staff. He was very serious and very professional and ran me through the same battery of physical tests that he always ran me through. Um, and so I went, I went to see him somewhere between three and five times. Usually it was only, you know, I needed, I need, because I needed to take a day off to do it because it's like, <laughs> when am I going to do it? When I get off work? Are you kidding? If I'm working night shift, I'm war there's no way I can do it during the day. And then go back to work or conversely vice versa even if i'm working day shift he's closed by the time i get there so i had to take a day off to go see the doctor um you know and then if i had to go to the pharmacy uh for a script then you know even more time so i'm like so i'm calling in i'm taking two or three days off because look i'm old enough and i'm experienced enough to know when i'm actually sick and i know about how much time i need to recover and recoup so that I'm back up to between 90 and 100%. 80%, yeah, we can do it, but 90 to 100 is where I'd rather be. Um, so now I got to take out of those three days that are supposed to be rest and recoup so that I can feel better, I got to spend one of those entire days going into town, going through all this stuff, and then coming back. Uh, I think once or twice I said, you know what, I need another day. And they would hem and haw, wah, wah, wah. I'd say, look, you know, you forced me to go to the doctor to get a doctor's note. Okay. That took an entire day out of it. And that took a lot of energy. Okay. Because I'm feeling that. So, you know, we'd go back and forth. But, you know, push came to shove. It's like whatever, you know. And <clears throat> I had the doctor's name. I had his phone number. I had his address there for where his office was. So, you know, if you got a problem, call him. And, and of course, as you might expect, he, he was always got, he always had my back. At one point they started to, um, not, I wouldn't say vilify, but they were seriously questioning the integrity and authenticity of this doctor. <laughs> I told him that, man, he went through the roof. Now he was not upset with me and he made it very clear, 
But he's, you know, because they were saying, well, he's from India, you know, how much of a doctor is he? And I tell you, he was, and he did ask for the name and number, and I gave him the name and number of one of the bosses, and uh, he never really told me exactly how that conversation went, but he made it quite clear that he is a certified medical doctor and certified there by the Kuwaitis, so basically, kiss my ass, if you don't like it, tough luck, (laughs) basically the way it went. You know, and, you know, he, you know, stuff like, you know, this is my patient, you know, he's under my care, um, you know, by all laws, Kuwaiti laws included, as well as the American laws, there's nothing you can do about it. And that irked them to no end. Uh, So talk about power and control. I mean, uh, any of you who've worked in Kuwait for the company that I've mentioned many times in previous episodes in this season knows that there was... Some serious power and control issues there with some of those people, right? Um, So anyway, those were the sorts of things. There were so many of them, you know, and these that led to, I think I mentioned, I have actually mentioned uh, once or twice early in this season um, about the stuff that broke out. Um, specifically as it pertained to CSA that had a spillover effect to pretty much every private security firm operating in the MENA region. You know, everything from taxation to, uh, I mean, just all the stuff that went into uh, starting the new year in 2008 off to less than a stellar start. And everything kind of went downhill from there because Congress got in on it and, and made a big, brouhaha about everything and as i've said before folks some of this stuff was well deserved well earned self-inflicted but so much of it was way overplayed i mean like i've said before a lot of the stuff that you've maybe heard and read about yeah it occurred it happened but to the extent uh, that it's been hyped no not at all uh, I mean, that's not to say that some of us didn't say, man, that's just too much. There's too many because, you know, we would see the stuff that people outside that bubble couldn't, didn't see and hear. So we still thought and felt that there was a lot of stuff going on that shouldn't happen. Because as I've said before, evil and corruption never end. They're ceaseless. They're tireless. They're relentless. Even when you think that you've got it, <laughs> they're out there still looking for that new angle. Okay, people got caught with their hands in the cookie jar plenty, even there in Kuwait, uh, mostly on Camp Arifjan, uh, but there were other places throughout Kuwait where people got caught with their hands in the proverbial cookie jar. And it was a we're not always talking the same one. Sometimes it was a different, okay, and it usually had to do with contracts, people getting kickbacks and, and, and one thing or another. But... I guess what I'm saying is that there were people, and I know I wasn't alone, but there were, it it seemed like sometimes I was the only one fighting the good fight, but every now and then I would have a nice conversation with a, with a good buddy or a friend or two or five or six that I made over there, where it's like reassuring me that I'm not the only one who sees it. I'm not the only one who's concerned about it, uh, but it is an uphill battle. And at some point you just, you know, so whether it's shopping at the malls, and there's plenty of malls in Kuwait. People love to shop in Kuwait. Restaurants, coffee shops, I mean, they are everywhere. And they're usually fairly pleasant, very nice to be in. The service is great, whether it's indoors or outdoors. I mean, 
it is, it, it, if it's not, it certainly could be a vacationer's paradise. But again, as an outsider, it doesn't matter which country you come from, unless you're part of that greater UAE area. But if you're otherwise an outsider, there, you know, there are just some practical, pragmatic things you got to keep in mind, mainly minding your P's and Q's because you are an outsider. They do have certain customs and certain expectations and certain beliefs. And it's not that difficult if, you know, unless you're just totally locked into that neocon, not neocon, but that, that, that new thinking where, you know, I'm self-entitled and I can do anything I want to do. There's nothing you can do. I'm an American, yada, yada, yada. You got to get over that, folks. Okay. Yes, you are an American. And there was a time, and hopefully there'll be a time again, when Uncle Sam will come to your rescue, even if it's by your own self-infliction. However, when you're out of your country, you need to, you need to mind your P's and Q's. Okay. But anyway, so Kuwait, uh, you know, the, I think we experienced, I want to say Ramadan twice, uh, or it was just starting as I, as I wrapped up my contract and left. But the first one, I mean, Ramadan, if you've never been to a country in the Middle East during Ramadan, it is absolutely amazing. And I even had these conversations with, with, with them occasionally in Iraq. And I think once or twice in Afghanistan, uh, because Ramadan was observed, I think, in Afghanistan, but it was primarily, you know, further west and south, you know, from Iraq south all the way down to Saudi Arabia. Um, but if you've never experienced one of those countries during Ramadan, it, it's pretty amazing. Uh, it gets pretty quiet during the day, not a lot of activity, uh, because most of them um, are actually observing Ramadan as it's supposed to. That is, they're fasting. They're not even drinking water, folks, during the day. Now, I, I think the, the fast starts just before sunup and ends until just after sundown. So that's a long haul in the summertime to not eat, not smoke, not drink, nothing. I mean, um, so it, at night, things change it gets it gets a little louder but it's it's still it's still under control okay now when that uh for what the western world would call festivities when it's over when ramadan finally comes to an end and you can feel it building in the air because it's like oh boy only a few more days <laughs> when that thing ends man it, talk about festivities I mean, all all the tents, and I forget what they actually called them out there, but all, I mean, just as far as the eye could see, pretty much anywhere you traveled around in Kuwait, there were tents set up. Now, some of them, and this was pretty amazing, also had very nice, luxurious motor coaches showing up to some of these tents, okay? And some of them were there before the end of Ramadan. So not everybody lived out of the tents. And some of these tents were small. Some of them were big. I mean, really big. It's like, wow, you could fit several families inside some of these and still have plenty of room left over. But so when this thing ends, I mean, it was just, it was people everywhere. It's like, I don't ever remember seeing so many people. <laughs> okay. And there was nowhere you could go out on the economy without feeling like it was wall-to-wall -wall carpeting of people. And 
probably the only tense experience I had during that first Ramadan that I was a part of. Uh, for whatever reason, me and two or three other guys decided we wanted to go to McDonald's. Uh, yeah, they had a Mc, they had McDonald's and, and, and plenty of other things there, including the Hard Rock, which is kind of interesting. We'll talk about that later. But we went. They wanted to go to McDonald's. We wanted some fast food, um, and it was probably a twenty minute drive from where we were living at that time. That seaside resort. Um, this, so this is before I went uh, north to Beering and Virginia. So we went there, and just a huge crowd of people outside including a very long line. And we're like, holy crap, we'll be here forever. I'm looking at the watch going, man, look at the time. We got to work tomorrow. Anyway, uh, we got in line and uh, I, we, we lost track of each other. We all were able to find each other, you know, and then drive back. But I'm in this crowd of Kuwaitis and I, and it's like, where'd everybody go? I can't find my buddies. So I'm in there, and I'm getting closer and closer to the counter. I'm almost within arm reach when a, a relatively large group of youths uh, crowds in front of me and sneer at me and give me dirty looks. And I'm like, wow, really, guys? You know, you <laughs> so fortunately, an elder was there and talking in Arabic excoriated them harshly and with physical gestures i might add now he also spoke english and when he was done excoriating them in his pretty good english as i recollect he apologized profusely to me thanked me for the service and and went on to talk about you know kuwait wouldn't be the free rich country that it is and have all the things it has if it hadn't been for us americans liberating them in the second gulf war or I'm sorry, the first, the first Gulf War. Um, so, and I was like, I one of one of the most humbling experiences I've had. Okay, and I thanked him profusely, and he he he. I don't remember how he went, but he opened up a big swath of area, uh, making sure everybody and, and ushered me up to the counter. It's like wow. I mean, it was just like the royal treatment. Got my food, turned around, thanked him profusely, and left without any problems. So that was probably, to me, it was a very humbling experience. But it also reminded me that, again, as I've said before, folks, not everybody is bad. So it doesn't matter if you're an American, whether you're an Arab, or you're from South America, or you're from Russia, or any other country, it doesn't matter. Not everybody typifies or stereotypifies the stereotype that everybody has of everybody else. Okay. And as I've said before, you really need to learn, if you haven't, to take people as they come. Take them as they are. And make up your own mind about each person on an individual basis. Because, again, not everybody's bad. So that was really the only, it wasn't the only, quote, unquote, bad experience I had. Uh, because that wasn't really a bad experience, but it was very humbling. Um, you know, one of the experiences I think I mentioned was, uh, I, I don't remember the name of the road. It was a 
like a, a back way road to the high rise that I was living in uh, before going off to, I think when I was working in Beering in Virginia. Um, so I'm walking down this road. I don't remember why. I guess I was just, because uh, again, I, I'm not going to pay uh, the 1500 or $2,000 a month to lease a rented vehicle. And I didn't really care for public transportation. Not that it wasn't good. It is. It was. Uh, it, it was clean and it was, it was almost always on time and it was relatively inexpensive. I was, you know, um, I don't remember probably like 50 cents roughly depending on the journey. Um, so I'm walking down this road and I see these two guys, um, just berating this woman and they're towering over her. And it's not, they weren't really, really super tall, but you know, uh, they were tall and they were physically intimidating to her and they were just dressing her down hard. And I remember distinctly thinking, you know, as much as I want to step in and intervene, this is probably, again, another one of those times where in just uh, stay out of it. it. You don't know what's going on. You don't know why. And we really don't need to get mixed up in local politics or civil affairs. Okay. If I think there's a problem, I can always call the police. So they see me coming and who knows what they're thinking. I'm there by myself. And at the time I had a military cut uh, or military style cut. And I don't remember, I was wearing blue jeans and, uh, you know, some hiking boots or shoes and uh, a T-shirt, I guess. Uh, don't remember if I had the Under Armour. Probably did. But as I approach them, they, you know, I'm maybe, I'd say 50 yards from them when they really take note. And they just stop. It just goes silent. The entire time as I get up to them and as I pass them, went around the corner and uh, I think I went back to the hotel. And who knows what happened afterwards. But they just stopped. They went silent. They just, and they smiled meekly. But they smiled and nodded their heads and acknowledged me as I passed them. But I thought, huh, interesting. Who knows what came of it or what happened. I don't think anything bad happened. But you never know. Because, again, stuff does happen. Even in Kuwait. But again, it's not my place to get involved. Now, if it had been serious, if they were beating her and, and physically harming her, that would be different. I probably would be absolved of any crimes as long as I didn't go too far to defend or protect one of theirs. But again, I, I, I did to the best of my ability to avoid those kinds of situations wherever I was. Just don't get involved. Um, so other things, you know, I think I mentioned earlier here in this episode about the Hard Rock Cafe. Um, as I recollect, there is just one, at least there was only one while I was there. I don't remember exactly where it's located, but I mean, it was a fabulous place. Um, and I'd never been to a Hard Rock before that. And I think I was at, you know, nearing the end of my tour and I wanted to check it out. And I ended up buying a few things that you could take back to the to the family, to the wife and the kids, you know, maybe like caps and shirts and stuff like that. Um, and I bought myself a couple things. And one of them was a uh, a very nice ashtray because, uh, again, at the time I smoked and uh, it had a chain, <coughs> you know, like a bicycle, uh, a motorcycle chain 
around the outside of it. It, had, it was adhered to, it was, it was embedded in it. Uh, just a really nice, ornate uh, smoking ashtray. And uh, so when I, <laughs> when I left, uh, when I was done, I was at the airport, and I was going through the last security check right there in the terminal as we're waiting to board the plane, and they're checking my carry-on stuff, and they come across this ashtray, <laughs> and, they're, and they're looking at it, and they're asking me, you know, I forget what they were asking about, but basically tell me I couldn't take this. And I said, what do you mean I can't take it? Well, you can't take it with you. And I, I'm, why? And they, I said, it's an ashtray, man. He goes, because it, it's, a, it's heavy and it could be a, a weapon. It could be a dangerous weapon with it. I said, it's an ashtray. He said, the chain. I said, oh, come on, man. Anyway, long story short, um, after a few minutes of going back and forth, I finally realized these guys were starting to get their backs up. And I thought, okay, whoa, whatever, man. I want to go home. If you want this ashtray that bad, you have it. So I said, it's yours. <laughs> Keep it. <laughs> problem solved. They ushered me on. No problem. I had other experiences like that going through other airports where it's like, whatever, man, if you want it that bad, I just want to be on my way. Take it. I'll buy another. <laughs> um, so, you know, and I used to hear a lot from people there in, you know, a lot of my compatriots and co-workers that, you know, the Kuwaitis were full of themselves. They thought they were better, especially the rich ones and looked on the nose and snob. It's like, well, maybe, you know, but is that really much different than here in America or pretty much any other place you've ever been to? It's just the way it is. Uh, that's people. It's a people, human condition, man. It's not just confined to Kuwait. But, uh, you know, I think that they, like most cultures, can discern, can tell when, in spite of everything else about yourself, you have good composure and you can keep, a, you can keep hold of everything. And they, for the most part, won't hassle you they'll acknowledge you um you know and and i've got tales about that too when i was in uh, lebanon <laughs> okay when i had been kicked out of iraq which i think i've kind of alluded to before and so when so the next episode is we transitioned into uh, iraq uh at some point i'll i'll tell that one uh in as granular detail as i can because it was everything from laughable and comical to absolutely infuriating um but what's that old saying he who laughs last laughs hardest well again there's a story to that and i'll get to that and again it goes back to just being a good decent human being i didn't realize i had the high level of friendship that i had developed from some of the generals and ministers that came through some of these places that I worked at. But apparently I did. Anyway, so back to Kuwait now. So, you know, so my last, um, I don't know, roughly six months, five, six months, something like that, uh, five to seven months were in Beering and, and um, Virginia. And Beering, I think some of you know, but for the rest of you who don't, Beering was at the time, originally it was, it was down near the port area. In Kuwait, but it had been moved uh, at my time there. It was the northernmost military establishment in Kuwait, just south of the Iraq border. And to the east of that, 
and, and slightly more north. Uh, I think they called it North Star or Mill Star or whatever it was, but they were, uh, and we called it other things too because it, it morphed and changed names. Uh, but that was the, the big um, Iraqi slash Kuwaiti checkpoint for everybody going in and out of Iraq, in and out of Kuwait. You know, if you're going one way or the other, you had to go through there, at least unless you were, you know, um, an agency spook or you were one of those agency people, um, even State Department. I mean, there were you know, obviously there's but for the rest of us, that's where we went through all the convoys, you know, all the military stuff, all the civilian traffic contractors. For the most part, that if we weren't flying, if we were driving, that's where we went. That's where everybody else came in. And uh, uh, I had an opportunity. I was invited once or twice, actually, uh, to work up there if I wanted and I don't remember why I said no. Uh, in hindsight, maybe I should have, because I remember thinking after I said no, it's like, you know, that might have been an interesting experience. Uh, maybe I should have worked there. Because one of the things that, that, that hit me um, by the time I was up there in Beering and in Virginia, because I thought there might be more going on. The, and... It's not that we didn't have some experiences. Um, I think I mentioned some of them there in Virginia, uh, mostly with the convoy trucks coming and going, uh, the drivers with the black flags and the emblems on them. You know, some of the <coughs> things that we keyed in on where we had to get them out of the trucks and roust them and corral them and, and uh, wait for uh, CID or the other intelligence people to show up and do whatever they did. Um, not always let them loose, but usually at some point they would. Um, and they all, you know, we never really got the full explanation as to why. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, whatever. If you guys, you know, because sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes the best way to catch the criminals or the criminal organization is to let them go and follow them. Okay? I mean, that's just one of the basics of intelligence gathering, counterintelligence, whatever you want to call it. And, uh, just being the guys on the ground, we did whatever they said. Okay, whatever. We're just here to do our jobs. You do yours. And so, you know, other experiences that occurred while, uh, while I was, because Beering, I was only there for about a week, maybe a week and a half. Um, man, it was, it was boring. Talk about boring, but it was also very hot. <laughs> um, it was very hot in all of Kuwait, obviously, during the summer times, June, July, August. Uh, just, whew. but for, it was just, it was boring. I mean, just absolutely mind numbingly boring. The only thing that we had to do, and some of us would play games and I won't go into detail about it, but were the spiders, the camel spiders on the ground. Um, if you didn't see them crawling around, their carcasses were everywhere. So after I spent, uh, I guess it was a week and a half. It might've gone two weeks. It, it it was between one and two weeks. And by the end of the first week, it was pretty clear that I was bored out of my skull. So by the end of the second week, they moved me down to Virginia. There was a little bit more to do down there. It was a bigger base, and there was more to do. It was still mostly kind of boring. It was mostly just routine stuff. Uh, most of the problems or hassles or issues uh, were with my superiors, if you want to call them that, the supervisors. Uh, for the most part, 
with most of the companies I ever worked with, I rarely ever had an issue with their, administ- their in-country administration or their in-country managers. It was almost always the other guys I was working with and the supervisors. I don't know why, but that's just the way it is. And some of you, maybe a lot of you, have had same or similar experiences. Um, you know, something happens when they hit that, that, that middle ground and become a supervisor. Uh, one of the other things that um, I had been offered several times was uh, an FTO position uh, because at the time I was an FPO, everybody starts out life. Uh, well, I mean, some guys, some people are hired um, right off the get go for the higher level positions. But for the most part, most of us start life as an FPO or a force protection officer. Uh, but then we had uh, what we called FTOs, which were the so-called field training officers so the guys and i think we had one or two gals that had were felt had learned the trade well enough and and had enough experience and were liked enough or respected enough that they felt you could go out in the field and drive around and stop in and visit everybody see how they're doing and offer this them some instruction and training uh, and things where they might need or want some additional instruction or training, whether it was searching vehicles or searching people or, you know, the things you had to do when you're in the towers, what you're looking for, how to handle yourself, one thing or another. I mean, just a lot of it. Uh, again, I said no. And again, I don't remember the exact reasons why, uh, but it's kind of like, nah. And I think part of it was, now that I think about it, actually, not all the FTOs, but certainly enough of them, I thought, yeah, I, I don't want to be associated with those people. So most of the issues that I had by the, I had a couple of experiences in uh, one or two, I guess, maybe more in uh, Camp Erifjan, but the majority of the experiences I had <clears throat> with supervisors that had a uh, glass rod up their rectum were, as it turns out, were guys that had recently been deployed to Iraq or other places, whether it was the military or other places. Those guys, I mean, it just, they had, well, in other, in some terms, they were broken, okay? But they were just super hardcore, supercharged, and, I mean, just sticklers to everything by the book, those were the people that I usually had the run-ins with and had problems with. One thing I discovered fairly quickly when I was there at Camp Erifjan is that if I knew I was right, if I knew that what I had done was right and it was proper and I could articulate it, especially by the rules, I would just stand up to them. And I would just, I would not relent. I would not bend. I would not move. And I would just throw that, the, those uh, articles or those rules, whatever, back at them. And say, look, I did it right, okay? There's nothing you can do about it, okay? You can hem and haw and get pissed off all you want, but I did it right. Yeah, let's go talk to the boss because you know he'll side with me. And once or twice, I even had to go so far, and this is the furthest I had to go, was, you know, if you keep this this crap up, I've got plenty of dirt on you because there's very few of us out here that don't have dirt on us. So you keep this up, no problem. I'll march into the boss's office and I'll make sure, along with everything else that we discussed, that the stuff that 
I'm not going to say right now, but I would let them know that it'll come out. So you go ahead and continue to treat me that way without any good reason other than you don't like me or you don't like the way I'm doing things. No problem. Let's take it to the boss. Always stopped it. Always. So aside from that and developing some really good friendships uh, with a couple or a few people there, um, and, you know, some respectability issues along with some people. I mean, in terms of respecting each other, uh, you know, and it was while I'm at it, the thing I the other thing I remember very well is it seems like the guys, mostly the guys, but there were some gals that had attained a higher level of NCO. And I mean, like at least E7, but usually it was E8 and 9. Those people seem to be the most grounded, most even-keeled, most well-balanced people. <laughs> Rarely, if ever, had any issues with those people. Now, why is that? Who knows? There's a lot of reasons, but experience really comes to mind when I think about those many moments. And one of those things that annoyed the bejeebers out of me that I thought we had resolved and settled months earlier when that whole list came out about all the stuff that was going on with CSA, primarily at Camp Airgen, and I thought being up there at Buring and Virginia, we were far enough away from the flagpole that that wasn't going to be an issue. But one of the things that irked me again to no end was gaiters and shamogs. They didn't want us wearing those. And I'm like, are you kidding me? With all the dust and sand that's blown around here all the time, and sometimes really bad, and I'm going to tell you, if you've never actually experienced a shamal, okay, then some of the pictures you've seen, maybe some of the videos you've seen, that's pretty much what it's like. And I'd seen that twice in Kuwait while I was downtown in my uh, apartment and, and once or twice out there in the field, uh, along with, I think we call it ball lightning. I mean... It was crazy. In Virginia, one night, it's like it, it wasn't cold, but it kind of felt cool. You could tell something was going on in the atmosphere. Anyway, we had this freak lightning storm, and it was the only one that I recall. And it was crazy. I mean, just this, this very, I mean, some of the fastest, quickest blue streaks and balls of lightning I've ever seen. And then came the hail when it was all done. Not a lot, but it did come down. Uh, so, you know, there, there, and of course, there were plenty of other things as well. But, uh, you know, putting a, a more or less final wrap on Kuwait for this episode. So uh, the final few days were pretty, actually the final week or two were pretty easy peasy. I was a short timer um, and everybody knew it. And... Uh, I think I took uh, three days, the final three days off so I could make sure I was packed, wrapped, and ready to go. I uh, didn't want to forget anything uh, because I was, as I've stated before, I was pretty focused on my job and making sure that I was ready for the next day. Uh, so I took, I think I took the final few days off and, and there was really no heartburn about that. Um, you know, some guys were saying, well, you know, you could work, you know, and, and it's like, well, yeah, I could and I could still get it done. But it's like, you know what? I've only got a week left, um, you know, and, you know, I met some interesting people there at the end and my final interview, I think they call it the exit interview on my final day. 
um, because the next day I actually flew out. Uh, maybe it was two days after that. But uh, I'm in this building, and as I recall, it was on Camp Virginia. But it might have been Buring, um, I, one or the other. But it was an exit interview, and it was required. You had to go there, um, you know, especially if you wanted your bonus check and yada, yada. It's like, oh, boy, whatever. So I went there, and uh, the story was that the guy was a retired officer, but maybe he was a retired a senior NCO, whatever it was. I think it was an officer. But word had it that he was one of the more influential people within the company. And, uh, you know, he was trying, obviously, to keep me there, you know, go home, take a month, you know, come back. And through it all, this, this, you know, letting him talk, you know, he, he, he finally gave me the opportunity. He said, look, go home for three months, okay? Well, I'll give you three months, and you can still come back. No questions asked. We'd love to have you back. And uh, I don't remember exactly what it was. And, you know, he asked me my honest opinion on stuff about certain things within the company and and my, I do recollect, recollect almost verbatim that my response was um, something like, if you really want the truth, uh, I don't really think you want to hear the truth. <laughs> and uh, there, was a, there was a little silence there, but he basically acknowledged uh, the truth to what I was saying, that he probably really didn't want to hear it. And, uh, you know, that I wasn't going to come back, but I would have, I, I thanked him for it. I appreciate the offer. You never know. Maybe I'll change my mind. And he said, you've got three months. Don't worry about it. And uh, I was telling him, well, my plan was to go home, take some time off, and then sign on with the company going to Iraq. And it's like, Iraq? Why do you want to go to Iraq? And he went and launched into a little thing about, you know, why, you know, this, that, one thing, another, and all this stuff. And, uh, I, you know, I just said, I don't remember exactly what I said, but uh, it was something along the lines like, well, why not? I said, you know, we hear, we read, we see. I want to know. I want to experience it. You know, I want to know and experience firsthand. And then if I, if you're right and I don't like it, I won't go back. <laughs> you know, just that simple. Anyway, so the exit, in, the exit interview, uh, I don't know, probably lasted 45 minutes, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour probably closer to an hour, whatever. It was just like, but when it was finally over, it's like, whew, okay. Uh, so it was it was the downhill slide from that point. Uh, I think it was two days later, I actually flew out. And I tell you what, what a feeling. Um, driving to the airport, I, it's, I'm not sure I can really articulate what it's like when you've been in a foreign land for a year and, you know, you the only conversations you have with your loved ones is by Skype. Um, and it's not always a good connection. But that drive to the airport was, the feeling was like, I'll believe it when I see it. <laughs> okay. When, you know, as the guys would say, when the wheels go up, you know it's real. <laughs> so I do remember going through the airport and sitting there with great anticipation and probably even anxious Finally got on the plane, and as it did its turn there at the end of the uh, the tarmac before uh, it it started its its uh, takeoff roll, and the engines powered up, uh, and then as it nosed up and the wheels came off, and it started its it, its climb and before it turns, it was like wow. I mean, it was just the sense of relief was amazing. I just can't properly articulate the the feeling. 
this is for real. I'm actually done. I'm actually leaving. I'm actually going home. Wow. Uh, just, you know, the sheer exhilaration and the sheer relaxation. It's like all these troubles and everything else had just been suddenly lifted from me. And I was a new man, refreshed, so I thought. <laughs> um, I'm going home. And it was for real. And just looking out the windows. And re- and then the other thing that hit me was, and I'm sure a lot of you experienced the same thing. It's like, wow, that went by quick. Because one of the things that a lot of guys complained about, and I, I kept it to myself for the most part, but I would occasionally acknowledge it. You know, by the time you get to that six-month mark, you're like, holy crap, this has been the longest six months of my life, and I got six more to go? Oh, you know, and I'm sure the guys that have been in the military that were actively deployed over there can relate as well. But that's the, that was my takeaway, my feeling from the whole thing uh, there in Kuwait. So in, in hindsight, it was awesome. I enjoyed all of it. Uh, it was a great experience. It set me up for all the future stuff that I was able to do um, and be a part of which I'm so grateful for, whether it was good or bad or indifferent. Uh, and, you know, I'll go into some of that stuff as well as some of the stuff that played out here in the States, um, the way it played out, including the opportunity. I don't remember if I actually went into detail, but I think I have slightly obliquely referenced it, where I had an opportunity by the Secret Service to meet and greet with the then President of the United States, Barack Obama, and get a photo op with him. Um, I won't go any further than that. I'll go into detail on that later uh, because in hindsight, my wife was right. Like she always says, honey, I'm always right. (laughs) So anyway, with that, folks, we'll put a wrap on this one. Again, I'll come back and revisit occasionally stuff in Kuwait as and when I recollect it. Uh, But after this episode, we're, we're going to Iraq. And uh, we'll see how that one goes. So, thank you, everyone, for taking time out of your day, afternoon, or evening to listen to me talk about private security contracting overseas, as well as some of my experiences as a private security contractor overseas. Thank you again to Cava Cohen and Colin Perry for allowing me the use of their music for this podcast intro theme music and thank you to Andres Rodriguez for his excellent addition to the outro music for this podcast thank you especially to my wife for whom I owe immeasurable gratitude my children and all the folks male and female who have been and still are a part of my life remember folks it takes a team the grass is not always greener on the other side Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real. (laughs) 